Hello, my name is Kay Tillo, and I'm the chair of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And we're coming to you on Forward Radio. Uh, Forward Radio is community radio. It's not bought and paid for by commercial interests, but it's a place where lots of people in our area get an opportunity to speak about the things that are important to them. So we're happy to have this space where we get a chance to talk about single payer healthcare and our concerns about the situation in our country with so many people unable to get the care that they need, which is why we spend our time working to educate and motivate and advocate for a single payer system that would finally bring healthcare to every single person with our, in our country and remove all of the barriers. So today we have with us um, two other people and the three of us are going to try to discuss some of the things that we hope you'll like to hear about, about what's happening in our healthcare system. So uh, let me, uh, well, let me let everybody introduce themselves. Garrett? Yes, good morning, uh, Kay and, uh, and our other partner this morning is Charlie. Charlie Casper. I'm Garrett Adams. I, I have a background in medicine. I'm a, a licensed physician and have been on the faculty at the University of Louisville School of Medicine when I came, since I came here in 1970 as a full-time professor or not, not actually I'm associate professor in, at the medical school and chief, former chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases. And I also have a Master of Public Health degree from Johns Hopkins in epide epidemiology. All of this training seems difficult at times and how we can, how I can apply it. I've been really attracted though in the latter years by how we pay for healthcare in this country and how we get or don't get healthcare. In 2003, there was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association about a national health plan. I associated myself with the authors of that and became a member of the Physicians for a National Health Plan and the more I've learned about it, the more important it seems to me to be a, because it's a universal health that we in the United States do not have because of the increased commercialization of healthcare in this country. And so this, this, is, this has been, a forte for me in the last years. And we're most uh, like, if, if we had a change, it would be like the Canadian system. The Canadian system is a one in which the government pays the bills, the doctors and providers take care of the patients 
and the government, and then the bills are sent to the government. They've cut out the middleman, which is uh, middle people, uh, which is what we have. And we, this increasing commercialization of American healthcare is costing us more and costing uh, the patients more. The costs in the United States are huge and the care is not as good as it could be. Now, let's just say a little bit about uh, COVID, for example. In Canada, the death toll from COVID has been a third of the total in the United States. And that's partly because they have a, a, a universal system that takes care of all of, the, all of the patients. The Canadians also have an average life of four and a half years longer than we do in the United States. Oh my. <laughs> Healthcare spending in, the, in Canada is half as much. They pay half as much for the, this better care than, than we have. Now, why is that? It's because of what we are now calling the medical industrial complex, the commercialization of middle people who are siphoning off huge amounts of administrative waste. To work on this is our goal we call it a single payer, the single payer being the government. We can do this. 150 or more economists in the United States have said that we would save money if we had this single payer and we can improve our health care outcomes. So that's where we are spending a lot of our work. And, and I think if we can get rid of all of the commercialization, for example, I overheard a friend, a good friend, speak of, of patients as clients. Patients are patients and doctors are doctors, not necessarily providers, although they may be providers, but it's this industrial complex idea has changed the profession of medicine. And we need to have something that is more professional. It seems to be taking the humanity out of it, right? Making it instead of a human, yeah. a human interaction with the yeah. profession and knowledge and judgment, uh, it becomes a business arrangement. Exactly, exactly. And there's more and more of that. It's a commodification of a profession, which is strange. You've spent your life taking care of children in uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and some other places. Is there anything in your experience that elucidates the problem with our healthcare system? Well, in fact, yes. I was telling you all a story about a, a patient that a gentleman that I knew in Grundy County, Tennessee, where I helped to establish a, a free clinic because the poor people there had no access to 
to healthcare. There was healthcare available on the Cumberland Plateau, but they couldn't afford it. So the community and, and some of, of the leaders got together and founded a clinic that would be free to all the mountain people. And we are now in our 11th year of that clinic. I knew a man who <clears throat> had, just as an example, <clears throat> excuse me, a man who had um, a cancer in his uh, gall, in his uh, bladder. He had a, a kid, uh, urinary bladder uh, cancer, and he had surgery to remove this. Uh, he had some precancerous lesions, and he had a cystoscopy in the hospital nearby, which took care of that, but he needed to have another uh, cystoscopy procedure to look again to be sure he didn't have any more, but he couldn't afford it because he had a hard time paying the first bill and the doctor and the hospital couldn't allow him to come back because he couldn't pay for another one. Well, he eventually had uh, serious cancer and he's, he's really in, in a bad way now. In contrast, one of our good friends whose uh, relative in Canada had the same situation and he was taken care of completely with no problem and no bill. It's that, that's an, an actual example of, of what we can do if we, if we would move to a single payer national health plan. Yeah, Canada's had that system for some time now. And um, while it's certainly not perfect, I think that the Canadians would defy anybody to take away their health care that really opens the door for everyone to get the treatment that they need and uh, removes the financial barriers, which makes it so unequal for us. Okay, I, I mentioned the medical industrial complex. Who, who is that? Who are the medical industrial complex? The health insurance industry would be the most, most offending agent uh, in, in that group. Big Pharma, where costs like some of the, the, the our insulin, for example, has gone from a modest cost up to huge costs, hundreds of dollars for a syringe. Medical supply companies. We have even in, in Louisville, there's a McKesson branch. McKesson is a very large drug distributor. Uh, several years ago, I came across the CEO pay uh, for the CEO of McKesson, and it was $148 million. And that's just skimmed right off the top of, of the cost of, of, of healthcare delivery, the waste uh, profiteering. That's terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. And that's what makes our healthcare cost so much. It costs so much for, uh, you know, overall, we, we spend about double 
per capita what other industrialized nations spend. But it's also the cost down at the bottom where the people have to pay. And that's the part that is uh, really disturbing because that's the part that forms a barrier between people getting the care. You know, I, had, I used to have a neighbor who, uh, she was a uh, manager at a McDonald's. So she lived on a modest income and she had had a, a heart condition and went to the emergency room and she had no insurance. Uh, they took care of her and sent her home and then she got a bill for many thousands of dollars. And so she set aside, you know, some of her money each month to begin paying off that bill. But the consequence was, she told me, she says, I will never go to the emergency room again. I can't afford it. I can't get health care because I can't do that without health insurance and on the income that I have. I'll be paying forever to finish the bill that I have from the past. So if the heart condition returns, that's the horror of it, is that she's not gonna go to get the care that our country has the ability to give because the money is a, a block and a barrier and it's inhuman and it's unjust. And that's what we're really working to get rid of is that that blockade against people getting the kind of care that our, you know, nation has the ability to give. It's, we're the wealthiest nation in the world. And we have lots of people with lots of skills. <laughs> and uh, we have the ability to do a lot of healing and we have to open the doors so they get to do it. Well said. If you think about the, the relative costs by proportion of a person's income for a person who's making, who's say a family income is uh, in fourth, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or you know, 50,000 50, on a 50 to 100,000, a health insurance bill of five or 6,000 is maybe not so high, but if you're only on 20,000 or 30,000 you're get, getting a year, that 5,000 just eats, is, is huge. The, the, dis, the difference in proportion of, of income, the, the cost of healthcare are totally unfair. It's, it's not fair to everyone. That's right. That's certainly right. I, I know uh, the average, um, you know, we, we say that uh, employer-based healthcare is the best in the country, um, but in many ways, it's not that good. Uh, the deductible, the average deductible for an employer-based healthcare plan is over $1,600. And most families don't have that much sitting around. I think I've seen the figures that about 40% of our people would be not be able to come up with a $400 
bill without uh, selling something or borrowing money. So a $1,600 deductible is a substantial barrier to really decent care. And um, for most families, that would be a big burden when anybody gets sick. And you add to that, Kay, the co-pays that, that people have to pay when they go to see the doctor. And a lot of them are neglecting their care because they can't afford the co-pays. So that's another huge element to the cost. Right, right. And you know, the, the thinking of the insurance industry has become a part of the normal speaking of it. So they talk about skin in the game. You know, there's a concern among some people and among the insurance industry that people are overusing healthcare. So they say we have to put up some cost in front of them so they don't take advantage and go to the doctor or the hospital more. And that whole idea of skin in the game that you need barriers because people are just uh, clamoring to get more care than they deserve is an ugly idea in our society. <laughs> It really is. You know, we have, uh, uh, we go to the doctor, uh, I think only about four times a year on average. People in Japan go 12 times a year. Their healthcare is less expensive than ours. Getting in to see a primary care physician or a specialist is a good place to spend our money. <laughs> But we are not getting that. We're not overusing that care. Our bigger problem is that people that can't afford to go and see that doctor and don't have access to the first step of care. And the same thing is true with hospital care. We, we spend fewer days in the hospital. You know, The insurance industry has a whole system where they're determining how long people stay in the hospital. Because the physician may think that a couple more days would be good for this patient, but if the insurance company's not gonna pay for it, the family's gonna go with the shorter period of time because um, the insurance company gets to write the rules by the control of the finances. And that's what we're working to remove is that insurance company control over the decision-making in our system so that decisions can be made by professionals in healthcare, the ones that people uh, choose to entrust their care to, and by the patients. Charlie knows a lot about this because his wife is a physician and he uh, lives with uh, the concerns that she has expressed over the years. Um, about what's ruling the healthcare in our country. It has indeed. And may I introduce myself? Sure. Uh, I'm Charlie Casper, and I'm a member of the steering committee of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. I have been for approximately uh, 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I spent the previous 25 years in the affordable housing industry concentrating primarily on uh, rehabbing uh, 
uh, homes uh, in Shelby Park and Smoketown areas and learned an awful lot about uh, the shortage of health care among our tenants. So that kind of introduced me uh, in a negative way to the problems we have in this country. And listening to Garrett talk about uh, single payer and, uh, and the culprits, as we call them, uh, in, in uh, uh, interfering with care for everyone, I, I can remember the first time I heard some of the statistics about the health insurance companies and their overhead and realized that some of the CEOs of the top paid health insurance companies are making $20 million plus a year. And that's just uncalled for. That is, that is money that goes nowhere. It's money that should be concentrated on providing health care for everyone. And that, that's something that we, we learned a lot about as we studied uh, some of the statistics and the things that get in the way of providing care for everyone. And the only program that makes sense is single payer, where everyone's covered and everyone has a card, everyone is equal. And it costs money that's much less than what people are paying now for their employer provided insurance or worse yet, individual coverage. So I think these are the things that, that we try to emphasize uh, when we talk to groups from around the state and in Louisville to educate them on why we need a single payer system. And it's just something that has uh, stuck in my head for some time now, and it's uh, energized me to keep going. And the the day-to-day seriousness of the problem is getting very much worse. And I think it's something that uh, we we just need to tackle. And some of the things we were gonna uh, refer to today, uh, in fact, some of the things we're gonna rebound around health insurance, not so much health insurance or the lack thereof, but Medicare, because we believe in Medicare for all. And there are efforts underway to privatize Medicare, which would mean it's gone. And we would be at the mercy of the for-profit health insurance companies and big pharma and the medical supply people because everything would be privatized and outside of the purview of Medicare. And this is, this is the alarming thing that seems to be going on now. And, you know, everybody has heard about the Medicare Advantage that Joe Namath uh, talks about uh, sickeningly on about three or four times a day by my recollection. And, and most of the stuff is just totally inaccurate that he's talking about. And uh, I know this is a favorite topic of Kay's that she'd like to address uh, uh, in, in terms of where we go on making sure that Medicare stays with us. It's our right. And, uh, and we think it should be expanded to everybody. That's why we emphasize keeping it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. This, this Medicare advantage, you know, it's so confusing 
that uh, many people don't know the difference between what is traditional Medicare, what is Medicare Advantage, what is Medicaid, et cetera. I think that uh, Medicare is a program that came into being under uh, in 65, uh, was signed by LBJ <laughs> and uh, picked up covering uh, everybody over 65 within the country. It was at the time a group that the insurance industry didn't want because as people get older, they um, can cost more and have more need for using the healthcare system. So it was picked up and people were put into a public program. And uh, that public program has endured and is loved and did some wonderful things. In fact, uh, one of the best things that Medicare did was they placed on it the uh, restriction that the money could not go to hospitals or physicians who were segregating or discriminating against people of color. And uh, the Medicare bill itself had uh, the impact of desegregating many of the hospitals across the South, which is a good thing about federal money and healthcare. But in, uh, in uh, many people, uh, well, the insurance industry really doesn't want it to be a public program. They insist there needs to be competition, there needs to, private uh, uh, companies get into it, they say that will bring down the costs. And unfortunately, they've won over um, enough people in Congress to get some of that passed into law. So Medicare Advantage is not traditional Medicare. It is a system where our public money gets given to private companies who sell their plans to people and the, the money filtering through their fingers ends up with at least 15% of it isn't spent for care, but instead goes to administrative waste and to profits for the industry. And so those are the plans that you hear advertised on TV because they've become very lucrative. In fact, <laughs> we are overpaying for them. Just think of that, you know, this, this, this was passed uh, and put into law to allow private industry in so we could save money. And in fact, these plans cost us more. They cost us more per, per person. I think I have the figures that we've spent, uh, we spend $321 more per patient who is in Medicare Advantage than we do on those that are in traditional Medicare. And the evidence is that those who are in the Medicare Advantage plan are less sick, less old, less frail, less disabled. So we're really overpaying those programs, I think over the past 12 years by $140 billion. So the idea that we were gonna save money isn't there. And on top of that, there's the problem that they deny care more in the private Medicare Advantage plans. There's a whole string of cases where 
they second guess the physician or the healthcare professional and say, uh-uh, we're not gonna pay for that. We don't think that's necessary. They put in a system of uh, prior authorization requiring that the physician call and get the permission of the company prior to proceeding with the procedure that the physician thinks is the right thing to do. Now this is upside down. Why should the business end be making the decision about what is best for the patient when they don't have the background to be able to make that decision on behalf of the patient. And I think that's one of the worst things about our system is the, the middlemen. And I know Garrett said they're middle persons, but usually they're men, <laughs> but they could be women, but they are, <laughs> they are people who stand, who have no, no professional credentials, or if they do, they have sold their credentials to the insurance company for which they work, and they interfere with the care. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we're having trouble with burnout in our healthcare system, is that people who have been, uh, have many years and years of learning how to take care of patients, and then find that they're spending their time sitting on the phone with an insurance company trying to persuade some bureaucrat <laughs> that this person needs this, uh, this procedure or this test or something else. And that's a big problem. We're abusing the people who have gone into uh, the health professions. And it's extremely critical now that we're faced with COVID, which is really stressing all of those who work in healthcare to the max. And, you know, I've seen the figures on, uh, it was the Lancet did a study about the deaths we've had. We've, we've lost more than 900,000 people. And that's more than any other nation has lost to this disease. And they found that, 40% of those people were lives that could have been saved had we been capable of getting care to all of those people. And that much of it is because we have a system that didn't provide for getting care to people at the time that they need it. So we are losing lives. We are losing people. And if we're going to be prepared for the next pandemic, or even to find our way out of this one, we need a healthcare system that will be humane, that will provide for people, and that will free physicians to practice in the way that they've been taught. It, I can, if I can add a, a thought to that, uh, Kay, <clears throat> I just read that, uh, from the Kaiser Health News uh, that their recent analyses of the deaths in the United States show that they are higher in the uh, black and brown communities and, and the Asian Americans and Latinos. So that those, those populations are 
more disadvantaged uh, in illness and also in deaths than the white population. So this, that's something else that uh, a single payer plan could uh, make us all more equal. That's such an essential part of single payer is that everyone is equal. And, and it's not a free one. If you're, if you're making income, you will pay uh, your portion uh, toward a single payer plan. It will just be much less than what the insurance industry would demand. Yes, I know the, uh, the figures have gone up even with the Affordable Care Act. You know, uh, many people in our country were under the illusion that when that was passed in 2010, we were really on our way to getting a healthcare system that was universal and served everyone. And um, while it did help some, uh, it did in all but 12 states expand Medicaid, although Medicaid um, isn't as good as it should be and pays less for people and therefore is not equal and not uh, what we need, but at least it was something. And, uh, but it also, while the Affordable Care Act decreased the numbers of uninsured, they are again climbing. And what it did was also increase the number of people who are underinsured, meaning that they nominally have an insurance policy but it costs them so much to use it that they still go without care. And that's millions and millions of millions of people within our country. So that none of us are really have insurance that totally protects us from the economic devastation of illness. That's what we found in on real terms and the Bershiba Springs Medical Clinic uh, in Grundy County, Tennessee. I remember a woman who came to the clinic and uh, she had a $3,000 deductible, deductible. She had insurance, but it just, there was no way that uh, their family income could allow for her to, uh, to get the care she needed too expensive and that that's what we found when we we did a survey in the area before we established the clinic and we found that there was uh medical care available in uh, in proximity to most of the people on the mountain and where we were but the, the problem was that the, the people couldn't afford it they just could not afford the medical care and it, it's one thing, too, that I, I understand that uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, insurance companies, they talk about premiums and how they've kept premiums the same from one year to the next. But in fact, they're now putting more of the cost onto the individual policyholder by increasing deductibles and co-pays, like Kay talked about earlier, so that that not only do they get, they, they keep their premiums the same, but they don't have to pay the bills because people aren't going to the doctor and they can't afford the co-pays. 
and the deductibles. So that's another little insidious element to the health insurance companies and how they pass along cost in a kind of a disguised way to their policyholders. Mm-hmm. And Charlie, if I could add, uh, <clears throat> during the uh, COVID epidemic, which by the way is not over, don't no. believe that it <laughs> that it is. We could say more about that in a minute, perhaps. But when you, what happens when you you're sick and you have to have to leave work? You can't work because you're sick. You lose your job, and then what? You lose your insurance. That's one of the main problems with employer-based insurance. That's, That's a very, <laughs> very good point. Because if you have single payer, you don't have to worry about losing your insurance. It goes with you. If you want to get a better job or go with another company or get laid off, you still have health coverage. You don't lose your insurance. That's a very good point. And that's, that's really important. Think of the number of people who stay in jobs that they hate because it's hard to find a job that has good insurance coverage. You know, another angle that I think of often because I, my, my children have all gotten into work of various kinds, but young people today have to look, one of the first things they have to think about before they choose their profession or whatever it might be, are the quote benefits. What are the quote benefits? And the benefits where they're talking about <clears throat> means health insurance. So that's the first, the, the salary and the quote benefits. You take that away as, a, uh, as an employment requirement and a person can do whatever they want to do. If they're an artist, they can, they can employ, employ that kind of work. Or they can, if they're a musician, they can do what they want to do. Or if they're an entrepreneur, they can do what they want to do. And we would re- re- think about the um, things that can happen when our young people can do the jobs they want to do. It would make a huge difference, huge and uh, unimaginable difference. It's really important for a country that treasures freedom, the concept of freedom, that we want each individual to be free to pursue what raises their hopes and their hearts and makes them able to contribute what they can to the life of themselves and their society. And we're taking that away. So freedom is an important concept of what we want for everyone to have the freedom that you can have when you have health coverage that is there for you without having to work for an employer that you don't want to work for. (laughs) And more or less in uh, kind of a follow-up to what Kay was saying about Medicare Advantage, there is another program that has just begun under Medicare as a further effort to privatize 
and it's called the direct contracting entities, DCEs, they call them. And this is a very alarming program that has begun in certain states. Probably we'll start seeing it for Medicare recipients in the Louisville and Kentucky regions uh, here this year, 2022. And basically it's, it's putting private equity firms, hospitals, insurance companies at the helm of what previously was Medicare. And these entities are receiving a fixed amount of money in some cases from a Medicare, and they are supposed to treat patients based upon that. Well, if you get private equity and medical care in the same box, uh, there's going to be a conflict because the doctors are going to want to watch out for the patients and the equity owners are going to look for profits. It is just a confounding way of having medicine be practiced uh, for the patients. And it's, it's a complicated program, purposefully so, I think, so that people don't really understand it. But once again, it's an effort to privatize Medicare. And as we said earlier, the main emphasis here is we wanna keep Medicare because we think ultimately Medicare for all is the only way to go. And the efforts to privatize, it just allows the health insurance companies in particular to look ahead and see that what is it, Kay? I believe it's 54% of people on Medicare uh, are on traditional Medicare. And 46%, I believe is the number, are on Medicare Advantage. Well, the health insurance companies look at that 54% and they see a major way of making profits. And that's what's beginning to happen. They're injecting themselves into decisions of healthcare practitioners and it's for the benefit of a return on their investment. Uh, this, this is a topic that I think we probably should think about doing on a separate radio show because it's getting more and more interest on the part of people on both sides of the equation. And it, it's, it's complicated, but it's something that people on Medicare should be aware of because they could get a notice in the mail anytime saying that they're being assigned to a direct contract entity and you have no recourse unless you leave that practice and find your own doctor. And that's difficult for older people in particular who have been with their doctor for 20 or 30 years or more. And they don't wanna be out trying to find another physician it's difficult enough under normal circumstances today. So I think this is something we want to emphasize to people that are on Medicare to be aware of. And if they get a notice, then there are ways to get out, but it's complicated. And maybe that's something we can address in a future program. Thank you for raising that, Charlie. Yeah, I think you made a very good uh very good uh, 
introduction to that issue, Charlie, and it's it's a, a dark cloud on Medicare. Um, thankfully, we have uh, uh, the Physicians for National Health Program and National Single Payer and some other groups have been taking it up and are doing education on it. They did a webinar on it to uh, focus the attention on it. I think the worst thing is that people can be auto-enrolled without their consent, which is the difference between the DCEs, the direct contracting entities and Medicare Advantage. But the even worse is that there is no limit on the amount of profit that the private equity firms and the venture capitalists can make on it. So they can get as high as 40% of the Medicare money and use that for their profit and administrative costs, meaning that it would reduce to 60% the part of our money that goes into the actual care of patients. And that's a grotesque program. And uh, there is an effort to stop it. There are 54 uh, Congress people who have signed on to a letter initiated by uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal. And they have asked for a meeting with uh, Health and Human Services Secretary uh, Xavier Becerra and asked to have a discussion about ending this program in the effort to make sure that we save Medicare from what Elizabeth Warren calls the vultures that are the uh, venture capitalists who are coming into the Medicare program seeking the large amounts of money there. So uh, I would encourage people who want to know more, you can find more on our website, that's kyhealthcare.org, or you can go to the national website, pnhp, pnhp.org. And to learn more about it, we are working to get people to call Congress, to call Becerra, and to build a movement to rescue Medicare from those who want to privatize it and to preserve a public program so that we can expand it, make it better, cover more, and cover everybody in the country. And that's the kind of improved Medicare for all that we really need to enact. We need to raise, raise the aspirations of our people. You know, we shouldn't be thinking in tiny little terms that maybe we can make it a little better for this one or that one. We have to make it better for everybody. This system isn't working for the people and we're not getting a healthy nation from it. And we need to push it forward and to give Congress some spine to say, if you stand up and fight for an improved Medicare for all, the people will be there to get your back, to have your back, and to take on the industry that is trying to block this and to stop it and that has kept us from getting the health care that we need. There, there is simply no room for private equity investors in healthcare. It's just a, it's a competing situation with doctors. 
And we're already seeing some doctors speak out on this about the conflict they're having with the managers of, of the private equity firms who have invested money in that particular practice. And sparks are flying in terms of patient treatment. They want to get rid of the certain elements of the treatment and the doctors are, are saying, no, we can't do that to our patients. I don't see anything happening other than the fact that this is going to grow. This issue will grow in terms of the, of the conflict between the managing partners and the physicians. And that is not good for the patient. There's no way we can justify talking about it any other way other than that fact. So I think we just need to be aware of that. And um, once again, direct contracting entities. Hopefully you won't see about it, but you need to be aware of it. <laughs> yeah, there are, um, there are two that are operating in Kentucky already. One is called Village MD that has offices somewhere around Murray, Kentucky. And one is called Illumed, I-L-U-M-E-D. And they have offices operating in the other end of the state in Pikeville. Now, I don't know the details about those companies, but I know that they're investor owned and that they make a profit from uh, those practices and they are uh, among you know the big guys. I know Village MD, one of the uh, people in that is Ezekiel Emanuel, who is uh, supposed to be one of the gurus of healthcare policy, but here he is with investments to make money out of healthcare, which seems to me would disqualify you <laughs> to, to uh, be a healthcare policy expert if you have uh, money at stake in the privatization of the healthcare system. So Kay, perhaps uh, you might say something about putting pressure on Congress and our Congress people to uh, stop the DCEs? Yes, uh, that would be good. We have six Congress people in Kentucky and uh, well, six in the House and two in the Senate and every single one of them needs to hear from the people that the DCEs should be stopped because they are privatizing our Medicare. They're turning it over to venture capitalists, private equity, to Humana direct contracting. Humana has a big part in it. They have direct contracting in uh, Texas and Florida, and I think another state, maybe Washington. But they're looking to make lots of money in that as well. And uh, I think we have to say that our healthcare is off limits for profiteers and privatizers, and that we want it to be used for the human purpose for which it has been set up rather than as a way for private investors to be making money. So we're, we're glad that uh, Congressman John Yarmouth was one of those who signed the letter. There were 54 in Congress who signed the letter asking for an end to the DCE. So we hope that uh, uh, the people will continue to speak out and we'll have hundreds <laughs> that are willing to speak up to stop 
uh, the direct contracting entities from actually taking over our entire healthcare system. It continues to get interesting. <laughs> yes, it does, Charlie. It does indeed. But, you know, I think that it gets worse. But one of the things that happens is as the crisis worsens, that possibly can compel additional people to become active because that really is the hope. The hope is that our people can understand what is happening with our healthcare system, come to know how it is that a not-for-profit national single-payer system really would solve the problem for all of us and uh, step into the fight to make democracy work and make those who are supposed to speak for us really act for us and pass the kind of legislation that we need and block these vultures from uh, controlling our system. Okay, how, how can individuals that are listening to this program get into the fray with us? Well, they can, uh, they can uh, go to our website because that has email and phone numbers and everything. And that's kyhealthcare.org, real easy. And we try to keep that little website up to date so that it's available and thousands of people do come and uh, look at that website. And then if you go there, you can get in touch with us because uh, we do meet twice a month with wonderful people who volunteer their time to try to bring this message around the state and around the country and use their time. We have educational programs available. We have lots of data that comes from Physicians for a National Health Program. We have PowerPoint shows. We've done show. We've done uh, uh, presentations for churches and for unions and for uh, students in medical school and for people on the farms and people in the in the basements and people in northern Kentucky. We've been to Vico. We've been to Pikeville. We've been to Lexington. We Garrett's done a number of college uh, classes. Uh, we are available to bring good, solid information and data on which to build a strong foundation for the understanding that can give us a movement that can make this happen for our country. And the fact that so many of these things that we've talked about are under the radar screen uh, it is is an indication that we just need to keep working and working hard for this because it's not going to be done by Congress and we need to be out there pushing every day to make people aware of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the, the problem is that Congress, uh, if the people are not active, they tend to listen to the industry, which has a very loud voice. And if people are active, we could make it possible that people listen in a different way. You know, they told us that uh, uh, the voting rights bill was not possible, but a movement within this country changed what was possible. 
And so that's what we're working to do, to change what are the possibilities for our country. And there is room for you here because we're just ordinary citizens and uh, there's room for everybody. It's a place for you to come and make a difference in making this happen for the country. Uh, you're listening to Forward Radio, which is WFMPLP, and that is at 106.5 on your FM dial. And this is single payer radio. It's a show that we have three times a week. It's usually done by doctors Mike Flynn and Eugene Shively and Mark McKinley, but today, Today, you're listening to Dr. Garrett Adams and Charlie Casper and Kay Tillo. And um, we're happy to be here to be able to speak about what we love and what we think is going to change in our country in the future. The views and opinions expressed on single payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. Single payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. You can live stream us at forwardradio.org. You can also listen to this, listen or re-listen to the show at forwardradio.org and go to the archives. Thanks for listening.